Hello, I'm Jonathan Smith. I'm the lead pastor at One Church TO, and you're listening to the teaching time from our weekend gathering. We're an imperfect community of over 70 nationalities and five generations who are attempting to follow and shine Jesus in the greater Toronto area. Our vision, it's so simple. We want to help people from all walks of life know God, love people, and in turn, impact our city for good. We've designed these weekends to be meaningful, challenging, and encouraging, and I hope that's what you get from listening. Happy Easter. Happy Easter, One Church CEO. Listen, I, I love what Pastor Keith just said when he was leading us in prayer. We're not, we're not using our words just to ventilate. We're, we're ve- ventilating. We're connecting with God. And words matter a lot. They're powerful and they're meaningful. And this Easter weekend, I want to help you find a deeper, more meaningful connection to Jesus, whether you're a follower of him or not. So I'm hoping that you'll open your heart, journey with me a little bit. In fact, I'm going to start back at English class. You remember English class? Do you remember grammar? How many love grammar? I'm sure there's a few grammar police in the, in the chat room. <laughs> Listen, there's no pressure here. I just want to talk briefly, though, about what a preposition is. A preposition is... Uh, really powerful. You, if you put the wrong preposition in a sentence, it changes the meaning and feeling of a sentence. In fact, let me give you a couple of examples that a teacher, a part of our church community, helped me with this week. Dave, shout out to you. And listen, shout out to all the teachers who've been holding down the fort with our children throughout this pandemic. I know there's been a lot of additional anxiety on you, a lot of different additional weights, and we care about you, and we're praying for you. In the chat room, you might want to just give some love to some of the teachers and educators that have been just holding down the fort for our kids. But here's an example of some prepositional changes. If Shelly and I were at Pearson International Airport, and Shelly's my wife, and we're headed for a really nice international vacation, the year is probably 2024 by the time we'll be there. But, but if Shelly says, hey, Jonathan, do you have everything we need for this trip? And I respond, I say, listen, I've got all the travel documents with the passports. You know what that produces? A happy Shelly. I've got everything taken care of. Now, change this preposition, and the meaning changes. I've got all the travel documents except the passports. Now I don't have a very happy Shelly, and we may not be going on this trip. Let me give you one more example. What what about this one? This book belongs to Dr. Van. You know, that's a good news sentence. That means I, I found a book that belongs to Dr. Van. Let's change the preposition, though. This book belongs unlike Dr. Van. Then it's a sad preposition. All of a sudden, Van doesn't belong. Hey, listen, I think often those of us who've grown up in the church and even in some sort of traditions, often we've got the preposition wrong. And it's, made a, uh, it's been, had devastating consequences. I think some of us, maybe watching right now, who struggle with this whole idea of Christianity and church, uh, it's because often you've seen or heard a version of Christianity or a Christian with the wrong preposition. See, often the preposition we hear most often repeated is the preposition for. And, and when it should have been from. And that additional letter and that change in order makes a big difference in how you relate to God and how you relate to the world around you. See, the definition for for, that preposition, indicates, uh, it uses, is used to indicate a destination. In other words, it's something out in front of us. It's something we don't have yet. 
It's something we need to reach for and strive for. It's, it's a destination piece. But the preposition from is used to indicate a starting point, meaning you're already there. You already have it. You don't need to go out and get it. You've already got it. And the implications are powerful. Some of us grew up in churches that taught us that if, if you're going to, you're going to need to be living for God's love, living for God's love. And that means you need to strive for it. You need to reach for it. You need it to be well-behaved enough, good enough. If you followed the rules enough, maybe you could get God's love. You're always reaching for, living for, fighting for God's love. And you know, when that happens, it changes the way we behave. But scripture doesn't teach that. Scripture teaches us that we're actually living from God's love, that there's nothing you can do that'll ever make God love you more, and there's nothing you've ever done that could ever make God love you less. Instead, we are living from God's love. In other words, you already have it. You already have it. It's already there. You can rest in his love, and what that produces in your life is confidence because you don't need to earn it. God already gave it. That little prepositional change makes all the difference. It can change the dynamic of a relationship. If you're living for God's love, you're constantly striving for his approval. And the problem with striving for approval is you can often see it in Christians. There's a weight. There's a struggle on them. They're exhausted. There's an anxiety and a stress to measure up that kind of influences and describes their relationship with God. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. You see, the wrong preposition in your relationship with God actually toxifies your relationship with God. It it creates a transactional relationship with God instead of a loving relationship with God. Uh, There's another example that I think, too, has great consequences in our culture today, and it's because mistakenly, sometimes we think we're living for a victory. We're living for a victory in this life. Uh, there, you can see it in Christians. They have an unsure victory. They're uncertain. And whenever we're uncertain about the future, it creates this anxiety and stress in us. And so, and, and such, many Christians begin fighting for victory, fighting for victory. And that subtle change in prepositions from for to from undercuts the victory that Jesus has won on Easter for all of us. And it produces Christians that become fighters, But the Bible doesn't say we're living for a victory. The Bible says that we're living from a victory. We're living from a victory. That Jesus has already won a victory. That's our starting point. It's not a destination we're headed towards. We're starting from a place of victory. That's what in in him we move, we live, and we have our being. We are anchored to this victory that Jesus has won. Let me illustrate this. The greatest sporting event in the world arguably would be the Super Bowl. It might be the most watched one-time event in the world, the Super Bowl. And you know what's interesting about the Super Bowl is um, my favorite team has been in the Super Bowl a a few times, a few times, actually eight times, but who's counting? Who's counting? And they've they've won it a few times, actually uh, six times, but who's counting really, really? Uh, You know, they're champions, whatever. Uh, Now, here's the interesting thing. 
When I'm watching the game, if you see me, I'm a big sports fan, and I'm on the edge of my seat when I'm watching games like this. And I can go from great moments of adulation and, and just shouting and excited to great moments of just despair. Because if I see my, one of the best players get injured, it, it teeters. The outcome of the game is still very uncertain. My team might lose. Now, if I never saw the Super Bowl, but I knew the score, and I knew my team had won, and then I rewatched it, listen, you know what I am? I'm relaxed. You know why I'm relaxed? I'm not anxious. I'm not stressed. Because even if the best player in the team goes down, I already know the outcome. I know we win in the end. And so it is with Christians. So often when we're living for a victory, we have this anxious anxiety that there's uncertainty about the future when there should be something so certain about us because we are anchored to a victory that Jesus won on Easter. And when we live uncertain, it produces a fighting mentality in Christians. And this is what leads to toxic Christianity. Toxic Christianity. It gets pretty ugly, actually. But Easter changed all of that. Can you say that with me? Easter changed all of that. Let's say it one more time. Easter changed all of that. Now it's possible to change the preposition. Now we can now walk in the Jesus way. We can now walk in the victory he has for us, that he's given us the ability to shake off all those things that beat us up, that hold us, that try to control us. We can now shake it off. So how do you do that? How do you shake it off? How do you just move on beyond it? How do you get into a different way? Well, the Bible says that every one of us is walking in a certain way. And that certain way has consequences, whether good or bad. Proverbs chapter 14 says it this way. There is a way. Can you say that word with me? Way. There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. 
See, Jesus grew up in an era, in a culture, in a world at a time where there were two dominant ways. Two dominant ways that were trying to control the culture and trying to control the masses. These two dominant ways were four ways, not from ways. They were four living ways. Those ways were a secular way. You could walk in that way or you could walk in a religious way. Those two dominant realities actually exist to this day. Let's, let's explore them a little bit so we, describe, so we can understand how we can truly shake off the things that control us and we can live in freedom. Listen, the secular way was really in 300 years before Jesus was born, the Greco uh, Empire, the Greeks, invaded Palestine under Alexander the Great and they, they conquered the land as they did everywhere they went at that era and that moment and that time. Alex Render was an interesting leader. He wasn't content with military dominance, nor was he just in it to get control of an area for riches. No, uh, the Greeks were missionaries. They were evangelists. They were trying to convert every man and woman they met along the way to a new type of way, a secular humanist way, a way that celebrated the body and mind, celebrated the human condition, celebrated humanity. And at the time of Jesus' birth, Herod was the biggest player in Palestine, and he was the champion of the secular way. And Herod used the secular way as a means to be progressive. He was trying to move this, this traditional ancient culture to become more progressive and more open in its nature. Now, Herod was the richest man in all of, all of Judea, Palestine in that time. He, you know, he was not just the richest. He employed the most people. You couldn't leave your home that you didn't hear the name Herod being shouted out at some point in time as you walked down the street. You couldn't walk down the street without walking by one of his massive construction sites. The secular way was a four-way. It was a four-way of living. It was focused on success and moving forward. It was an exhausting pursuit of more. In its drive to elevate the human way, in its drive to elevate humanity in many ways, uh, truth became something that was relative. Morality and values became more optional because if you're living your one and only life because there's no other life on the other side of this, then you better maximize this moment. What is interesting though when you study it, because you might not think of secular humanism as a religion, but it, but it is, it's a belief system. It's a belief system. And what's interesting when you study it, you realize that secular humanists are a lot like religious people in many ways. They want the benefits of the religious way, being if it, lends, if it makes people more compassionate or loving or generous, we want that, but without any of the requirements of the religious way. So they want to cherry pick. And Herod had bought into the secular way, and he used his power and, denom- uh, and dominance to get his way in that life. In fact, Herod's way was sought to cancel anybody or anything that got in his way. See, for Herod, the ends justified the means. And whatever it took to accomplish what needed to be accomplished, that's what was going to happen. That's how you got things done in Jesus' day. You got it done Herod's way. That's how you got things done and you got things accomplished in Jesus' day. It was through manipulation and being cunning and being caustic and smart and ambitious and decisive but cruel and selfish all at the same time. It's interesting though. 
Herod's way is the way is the things that get rewarded in our present day, isn't it? Everything this world still rewards. Now, what's interesting about the secular way or Herod's way is that Jesus totally ignores Herod's way. He totally ignores it. In fact, I, I like what Eugene Peterson, the author, says. He says, Jesus spent his life walking down roads and through towns dominated by Herod's policies, shaped by Herod's power, communities that were at the mercy of Herod's whims, and he never gave them the time of day. Jesus lived as if Herod had never existed. So Jesus ignores that particular way. What about the religious way, though? About 150 years before Jesus was born, the religious way, there was a religious group called the Pharisees, and they became protectors of the religious way. They were pushing back against the secularization that the Greeks and then the Romans were bringing into Palestine. They were protecting a way of life. And in their defense, the religious way had been around a lot longer than the secular way. It had deep roots in this area. And they, but it was under attack, the religious way was, because times were changing. It was time to get progressive. Now, the Pharisees weren't interested in being progressive. They were more interested in preserving, preservation, preserving a godly life, preserving holiness, preserving godly values in their life. They, they were like really the devout opposition party to the secular way, to the changing standards and the slipping moral values that they saw that was touted by the secularists. They were the cult country's conscience, although probably self-appointed conscience, defying the brainwashing propaganda of secularism in their era and their moment. But the religious way was also, just like the secular way in many ways, it was a type of four way of living. In, it, uh, in their drive for holiness and righteousness and godliness, they put on the people all of these requirements that required them to behave enough, be good enough, be, and, and it was unbearable. It was undoable. It was so much pressure on them. It was an exhausting path, an exhausting way, and it favored a particular type of person or a particular type of wiring. The interesting thing is, ironically, just like the secular way wanted to cherry pick from the religious way, the religious way also wanted to cherry pick from the secular way. They would have loved some of the progress of the infrastructure and the aqueducts and all the things that Herod brought in under his administration. They'd love all the benefits of that with none of the trappings of the secular way. In the end, the Pharisees, if you read the story, become a lot like Herod in the secular way. Because for the Pharisees, they sought to cancel anybody or anything that got in their way. For them, just like Herod, the end justified the means. Listen, if you've got to do something that you know may not be right in order to accomplish something that's right, then that was okay. And we all know the story. In the end, they canceled Jesus. Jesus got in their way. Jesus got in the way of the religious way. And so in the end, they had to cancel Jesus. You know, if, if Jesus ignored Herod, he challenged the Pharisees. He challenged them. And he challenged them because they had gotten the wrong preposition. Now, you got to ask yourself, why does Jesus challenge both of these ways? The secular way didn't like Jesus. The religious way didn't like Jesus. Uh, the, the Herod way didn't like Jesus. The Pharisee way didn't like Jesus. 
Why did he challenge them? Because both of them had some beneficial aspects, right? I've mentioned this a few times. Herod's way certainly built a ton of infrastructure and progress in the culture and society of their time. The Pharisee way certainly protected Jewish identity and culture, but it also produced good family, strong units and, and morality in this life, and even a cause towards generosity for those that might be poor or marginalized. It's not like these ways didn't have something to offer. Jesus challenged them precisely because it was how they were going about uh, accomplishing these things. How they did things mattered to Jesus. And they were using power in a, in a destructive and in a way where, in a destructive way that was hurting and destroying creation. See, power is not an evil thing, right? Power can be good or bad. Well, you need power to accomplish things. Uh, in our last gathering, the power went out in the building. Everything got shut down in the first gathering. Uh, you need power to run things. The power's not, it's neither good nor bad. Power is used to maintain systems, whether they're good or bad, and power is used to get your way. And this is the dangerous thing in our world today. You see it. When people have a lot of power, often they have low accountability. And the problem, why they turned into such monsters like Herod did, Herod became a monster because he had no, no one holding him accountable. There were no limitations around him. Unchecked power is incredibly dangerous. In the past years, we've seen this, this past year, we've seen a seismic level shakedown of the power structures and the power players in this world, haven't we? It's, it's like everything up, everything up went down and everything down went up. It was a radical reformation and it's not done of the norms that have been accepted for decades, even sometimes centuries. Misogynistic views, racial inequalities, economic disparities are all being challenged in this moment. They're all being questioned, challenged, and shaken. And friends, that's what Jesus came to do. Didn't, Jesus didn't come to prop up the status quo. Peter, Jesus came to challenge the power structures of both of these ways, the secular way and the religious way. Why? Because he wanted to create a better way, the Jesus way. Jesus came and lived the life I couldn't live. He died the death I deserved to die. And then he rose again to provide another way. He came to change the power structures previous to Jesus. It was the strongest who inherited the future. The future belonged to the biggest, the best. The future belonged to the smartest, the most powerful, the best rule keepers, the most pious. But in Jesus' kingdom... All of a sudden, because of his death and resurrection, he changed the narrative. All of a sudden, it was the weak and the poor that were elevated. In Jesus' kingdom, how you did something was as important as what you did. In Jesus' kingdom, how you say something is as important as what you say. And we get this wrong all the time in both the religious and secular way. I've heard the religious way. Oh, they're speaking truth in such an unloving way, it makes it wrong in the end. The Jesus way never does that. Jesus way will speak truth cloaked in love, and it produces health and good things in the end. In Jesus' kingdom, what is previously going down was moving up. Let me leave you with a couple of encouragements before we turn to a moment of prayer. If you are a follower of Jesus, listen, listen in quickly if you would. Don't let the fight against the Herod way 
cause you to stop living the Jesus way. Some of you need to take that and you need to print that out and you need to put that over your computer or your phone everywhere you post on social media. Don't let the fight against the, the Herod way. Maybe there are values and morals and things in this world that disturb you and bother you. Well, don't let it stop you from living the Jesus way. Don't let it stop you from speaking the Jesus way. Don't let it stop you from loving the Jesus way. Hey, don't let Herod, don't let that way pollute your way. Walk in the Jesus way. There's an alternative way. And if you're a skeptic or, or you're seeking and searching, you're not even sure about where you're at. Let me encourage you. You need to print this out. Take this somewhere. Make sure you keep this in front of you. Don't let the struggle with the Pharisee way cause you to stop searching for the Jesus way. I feel you. I know you. I've been you. And I can tell you this. Many years ago when I decided to walk in the Jesus way, that has made all the difference in my life. All the difference. Isn't it interesting the secular way didn't like Jesus, and the religious way didn't like Jesus. Why? Because he was dismantling their powers to create an alternative way. On Good Friday, he was wrongfully accused, wrongfully tri tri uh, arrested. It was the greatest shakedown in human history. And then he suffered the greatest miscarriage of justice when in history. He was murdered. And he was murdered by colluding powers of the religious way and the secular way together. They, Jesus got in their way, so they had to cancel Jesus. And then he was buried. He was wrapped in these grave clothes, and he was laid in a grave. And you know, buried with him that day was all of those fours that drive the religious and secular way. All of those things, striving for, reaching for, never good enough for. It was all buried with him that day. The Pharisee way, the Herod way, the secular way, the religious way, buried with him that day. All of your sin, all of your brokenness was buried with him that day. When Jesus rose from the grave, he shook off those grave clothes so you and I could shake off all those things that have been wrapping themselves around our lives since the moment we made our first breath on this earth. All of the sin that entangled us, all of the brokenness, all of the control controlling powers in our life that have been wrapping their tentacles around our lives, all of a sudden, the Jesus way produces freedom. Freedom. We're freed up on that way. Now, Jesus has made it possible for you and I to shake off those grave clothes, to put on a new gar garment. To, he's made it possible for us to now uh, shake off the smell of death, to take on the aroma of Christ. Now, sin can't have us and death can't hold us. Why? Because Jesus shook the powers of darkness and now he has triumphed. And we aren't living for a victory anymore. We are living from a victory. I want to pray with you before we end and I'd invite you, maybe there are some of you watching and you'd, say, you'd acknowledge, listen, I'm walking in a secular way. Or maybe you'd say, listen, I'm clearly walking in a religious way. I know it. I can see it popping out my attitudes and my words. Maybe you're like, maybe there's some of us here and we'd have to acknowledge, listen, we're trying to walk in both ways. We're what the Bible calls double-minded. I mean, I want this. I want the benefits of knowing God, but I, I want this and I want my own way. And we, maybe we acknowledge, listen, we're, we're on both sides of the fence. Hey, why don't you join the 29 others already this weekend 
who've made a decision to give up the secular way and the religious way to follow in the Jesus way. We had 20 on Good Friday gathering. We've had nine in the last two gatherings. Why don't you pray with me and walk in the Jesus way? Let's pray. God, I thank you for the way that you sent your son Jesus for all of us. Truly, you've loved us. You loved us from the moment you created us. And even when we turned our backs on you, you didn't forget us. You didn't even leave us. You wouldn't leave us or forsake us. You went looking for us and you found us in our brokenness, in our lostness. You found us in those well-worn roads of, of the secular way and the religious way. And God, you knew that both of them had an ending that was never everlasting. Both of them had an ending that would end with some sort of brokenness in our lives. And so you sent Jesus to provide another way. Friends, I'd invite you to pray with me if you want to follow Jesus. Jesus, I want to leave the road that I'm on right now. And I want to walk your way. I acknowledge today that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Would you forgive me for everything that I've done? Anything that has damaged myself, anything that's damaged other people in your creation, anything that's damaged my relationship with you, please forgive me. Fill me with your spirit so I can have the strength and the power to walk in the Jesus way. I choose today to shake off those grave clothes and walk in freedom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful, we hope you join us at one of our campuses if you're in the GTA for a weekend gathering. If you're listening from somewhere else in the world, we'd encourage you to join us at onechurch.to slash live. We believe everyone can be a part of what Jesus is doing, both in our community and in our city. So if you'd like to connect with us at a deeper level, visit us at onechurch.to slash next steps. See you next time.